President Biden's big moment at the United Nations. Where are today's terror threats? We'll hear from the FBI. Washington's gridlock over the budget, taxes, infrastructure, free money from the government, plus our quote of the week. And as always, we'll dive into the history archives. I'm Paul Brandis. You're listening to West Wing Reports. It's Friday, September 24th. Harry Truman once said, it's hell being president. And if Joe Biden did not understand that before, he probably does now. Like any president, he's got multiple problems here at home and on the world stage, challenges galore. He made his first appearance as president at the U.N. this week. Biden faces the challenge of trying to lead while acknowledging the limits to American power in a world that is rapidly changing. He calls this a global inflection point. Here's a brief excerpt from his remarks. As we steer our, steer our nations toward this inflection point and work to meet today's fast-moving, cross-cutting challenges, let me be clear. I am not agnostic about the future we want for the world. The future will belong to those who embrace human dignity not trample it. The future will belong to those who unleash the potential of their people, not those who stifle it. The future will belong to those who give their people the ability to breathe free, not those who seek to suffocate their people with an iron hand. Authoritarianism, the authoritarianism of the world, may seek to proclaim the end of the age of democracy, but they're wrong. For more on this, let's bring in the man who is arguably the best journalist in Washington, Jerry Seib of the Wall Street Journal. He's covered the Middle East, been a White House correspondent, interviewed every president since Reagan, and won every award imaginable, including being part of a team that won the Pulitzer Prize for coverage of the 9-11 terror attacks. Am I leaving anything out, Jerry? That's more than enough. Thank you. <laughs> first, President Biden's first address to the U.N. General Assembly. How did he do? Well, I think he did fine with a, a not great hand at the moment. I mean, the optics of that appearance uh, weren't uh, great for him, obviously, because of the mess in Afghanistan, the withdrawal and some of the uh, ominous things that seem to have happened since the withdrawal. Uh, because of a fight uh, underway with France, uh, America's oldest ally, at the same time the president was speaking there because of a nuclear uh, submarine contract that had been taken away from France and, and uh, given to the Americans by the Australians. Um, and kind of a general question about whether the premise of the Biden presidency, as the world saw it, which was this was somebody who would return American leadership more to normal after Donald Trump and would be uh, in particular better for alliances uh, has really proven to be that. So given that backdrop, I think he I think he said everything that uh, allies and, and some adversaries would have expected and hoped for him to say. I think one of the striking things in this is about the post-Afghanistan uh, agenda was the uh, emphasis placed on climate change. And one of the things the Biden people wanted to do was to say and to show that the reason, or a reason to get out of Afghanistan was to move on to a newer, more forward-looking agenda. That certainly includes climate change. And you saw and heard a lot of that in the president's remarks. You know, I watched that speech and then I went through the transcript rather carefully. I don't think he mentioned China by name, but it was clearly an unspoken 
theme for the president. Here's the question. So the president is clearly trying to reorient America's foreign policy towards one of Chinese containment, if that's even possible at this point. He has angered them by criticizing their human rights record, among other things. At the same time, though, he expects their cooperation on things like climate change in North Korea. Is it possible, Jerry, to both hammer them while expecting their help? You know, that's the great balancing act, not just of the Biden presidency, but probably for the next several decades. Can you have a relationship with China in which uh, you are in competition, but also in uh, cooperation on some fronts without being in confrontation? I mean, that's a lot to load into one uh, bilateral relationship. But that's really the challenge, because you're right. I mean, there are certain things. Uh, climate change and the North Korea nuclear program come to mind uh, immediately where the U.S. can't get what it get what it wants unless it's got some kind of cooperative venture underway with China. Uh, but at the same time, you know, this is going to be a competitive relationship, economically competitive, uh, competitive for diplomatic influence, particularly in the Asian region um, and, and also militarily uh, and also just basic economic competition. And so there's there's a difficult balancing act here. I thought it was interesting the president didn't name China specifically. I think he did not want this speech to be seen as one that was in any way incendiary. Uh, so I think he referred to the problems with China without referring to China. Um, again, I think he's aware that particularly in Europe, uh, allies want to cooperate in the competition with China, but they do not want to be part of a confrontation with China. And that's the line I think he was walking at the U.N. You know, there's one other thing about China that I wanted to ask you. You know, my background is uh, Russia. I spent five years working in uh, Moscow, for example. And these uh, these uh, comparisons to a new Cold War with uh, China, like we had with the Soviet Union, I just don't think those comparisons are valid. Tell me what you think. And what I mean by that is, you know, the Soviet Union was a giant country, obviously, with a population about equal uh, with uh, ours. But from an economic standpoint, uh, they were not a major player. They really had nothing to offer the world other than oil. It's a completely different dynamic with China. I think that's the key thing that people have to keep in mind. Yes, there are Cold War overtones here. Um, but as you say, the Soviet Union was never an economic competitor or an economic partner of the U.S. You know, the whole relationship existed in a uh, competition for military superiority and uh, geopolitical influence. Uh, there's some of that in the relationship with China, but none of the economic overtones. You know, we can compete with China, but we also have to cooperate with China economically to some extent. You've seen that in the last few days, by the way. The stock market is rattled by the potential default on loans by a big uh, Chinese real estate company. And if you needed an illustration that this is a codependent relationship in a way the Soviet relationship never was, well, there you have it playing out in real time uh, at, the, uh, at the stock market in New York. So that makes it fundamentally different. It also means, by the way, you can't really – uh, get into a Cold War because uh, the consequences are probably too great for both sides. And the Chinese know this as well as the Americans. Saib has a very important new book out, by the way. We'll get back to him in just a couple of minutes about that. But first, let's look at the week's 
other big news. What are the biggest terror threats facing America today? Top U.S. officials briefed Congress, and one of them, FBI Director Christopher Wray, said the list of dangers is far too long. There's no shortage of dangers to defend against. Just a flavor before we even get to terrorism. On the cyber front, we're now investigating over 100 different types of ransomware, each with scores of victims. And that's on top of hundreds of other national security and criminal cyber threats we're working against every day. In our violent crime work, we recently arrested over 600 gang members in a single month. That's just one month. Protecting our nation's innovation, we're opening a new China counterintelligence investigation every 12 hours. And every day, we receive thousands of tips into our National Threat Operations Center, many of which involve imminent threats to life requiring swift action. And the list goes on and on. But the biggest threat of all, he says, is terrorism, and that includes the homegrown kind. Today, the greatest terrorist threat we face here in the U.S. is from what are, in effect, lone actors. Because they act alone and move quickly from radicalization to action, often using easily obtainable weapons against soft targets, these attackers don't leave a lot of dots for investigators to connect and not a lot of time in which to connect them. We continue to see individuals radicalized here at home by jihadist ideologies espoused by foreign terrorist organizations like ISIS and Al-Qaeda, what we would call homegrown violent extremists. But we're also countering lone domestic violent extremists, radicalized by personalized grievances, ranging from racial and ethnic bias to anti-government, anti-authority sentiment to conspiracy theories. Again, that's FBI Director Christopher Wray on Capitol Hill. The final item for this week, Washington's gridlock over the budget, taxes, infrastructure, everything seems stuck. The president's infrastructure bill has passed the Senate, but it's being held up in the House by members of his own Democratic Party. Now, why is this? Because far-left progressives are demanding that Congress first pass the president's $3.5 trillion social spending plan. They've got leverage and they're using it. And that is just the Democratic opposition. There's Republican opposition to, and no surprise here, to Biden's tax hikes. The president says more revenue is needed to fund everything from preschool programs for children to better medical benefits for the elderly and a whole bunch of stuff in between. Republicans say, we can't afford all this. But even without that giant bill, the debt has been shooting up as it does under every president, this is a good example of Washington's hypocrisy and how it can hurt you. Give me a chance to explain here. This sounds kind of boring, but there's something called the debt ceiling. And what that means is that the federal government can only run up so much debt. If the debt hits that debt ceiling, it has to be raised by Congress. So what happens if it's 
not raised. Well, Uncle Sam has to stop spending, and here's how that can hurt you. Social security payments, for example, might not go out. U.S. troops and federal civilian workers who work to keep us safe would not be paid. Assistance to veterans could grind to a halt. So would food stamps, which tens of millions of Americans depend on, and more. Over the decades, the debt ceiling has been raised dozens of times with no fuss, both Republicans and Democrats cooperating to keep the government running. Here's an example of that cooperation. Are there any senators in the chamber wishing to vote or wishing to change their vote? If not, the ayes are 67, the nays are 28, and the bill is passed. Now, that's from August 2019. The Senate, in a bipartisan 67 to 28 vote, agreed to raise the debt limit. One reason it had to be raised in 2019 is because spending and the debt soared during the Trump era. There were these huge tax cuts for the rich and for corporations that generally were not paid for. So the Senate, again, the Republican majority and the Democratic minority voted together. Again, the bipartisan vote was 67 to 28. Now, at the time, the majority leader, Kentucky's Mitch McConnell, said raising the debt ceiling was necessary to avoid a partial government shutdown, which would damage the American economy. Now, fast forward to 2021 and the shoes on the other foot. The big spenders then were the Republicans. The big spenders now are the Democrats. But the problem is the same. The debt ceiling has to be raised. But instead of giving the cooperation that he got in 2019, McConnell now says, forget it. If Democrats want to raise the debt ceiling, they'll have to do it themselves. Here's what he said Wednesday. My advice to this Democratic government, the president, the House, and the Senate. Don't play Russian roulette with our economy. Step up and raise the debt ceiling to cover all that you've been engaged in all year long. So that's a lesson in how Washington works. When I'm in power, you should do the right thing and help me. But if you're in power, well, you're on your own. It's this kind of Washington hypocrisy that can hurt you. Some money and economic news affecting you. The big summer driving season is over. Gasoline prices remained unchanged from a month ago. About 3.18 for a gallon of regular, AAA says. Now, analysts say prices should fall as temperatures do. You might not know that gasoline is usually more expensive in the summer, not just because of demand, but because it's made of ingredients that won't evaporate in hot weather. Those ingredients typically cost more. Bit of a chemistry lesson there. More Americans than expected filed for first-time unemployment benefits last week, 351,000, says the Labor Department. But overall labor trends, say economists, remain strong. And higher interest rates are on the horizon. The Federal Reserve says it may raise them next year as the economy continues to recover. Higher rates impact everything from mortgages, car and student loans, and all the rest. Higher rates are typically used to keep inflation in check. And I told you earlier about a federal government program that gives you free money. It's true 
if you qualify and if you sign up for it by October 15th. It's called the Advanced Child Tax Credit Program. Here's how it works. Under something called the American Rescue Plan, which you may recall was signed by the president earlier this year, you can get help, a total of $3,600 for kids five and younger and $3,000 for children aged six through 17. Now, this began earlier this year, and the money goes straight into your bank account, but you have to sign up, and a lot of folks have not. There are three more payments left for this year, the 15th of October, November, and December. Millions of needy American families have signed up. If you are a lower-income family and need help, this could be a huge help. So how to sign up? Go to the IRS homepage, irs.gov, that's irs.gov, and in the right-hand column of the homepage, you'll see something that says, get details on the advanced child tax credit. Again, go to irs.gov. I spoke a couple of minutes ago with Jerry Seib of the Wall Street Journal about President Biden at the U.N. Jerry has an amazing new book out as well. It's called We Should Have Seen This Coming, From Reagan to Trump, A Front Row Seat to a Political Revolution. Jerry, in this book, you cover a lot of ground, but there's one thing that I wanted to specifically focus on. A Donald Trump, the former president, still dominates the Republican Party and you know, we don't know whether he's going to run in 2024. Aides are pretty certain he will, but who knows with Donald Trump. But even if he does not run, will Trumpism, and I'll ask you to define that, how long will Trumpism endure into the future? You know, I had to write a new introduction for the paperback version of the book that just came out, and I had to address this question. The bottom line I drew there um, several months ago, which I still think is the correct bottom line is that Trump himself may or may not dominate the Republican Party for a long time, but I think Trumpism isn't going away. And by that, I mean Trumpism defined as a kind of more populist Republican Party, one that's geared more toward the working class, one that has jettisoned a lot of the conservative principles that Ronald Reagan made the heart and soul of the Republican Party, free mm-hmm. trade, uh, uh, positive views toward the economic benefits of immigration, um, it, international engagement as opposed to neo-isolationism, um, concern about too much executive power, concern about uh, too much government spending and deficits, all those things that Reagan brought to the table and made uh, central to Republican philosophy, Donald Trump doesn't believe in. Um, and so that is where the Republican Party by and large is, not 100% on all fronts, but it, virtually every uh, Republican official who's either been elected or seeks to be elected is running as an America first Trump uh, populist now. And that's a huge change. And that's not going to go away whether Donald Trump runs for president in 2024 or not. I do think as a footnote, though, there is a test of the um, strength of Trumpism in the Republican Party. And the one thing that could change this uh, trajectory is, it will be the 2022 midterm elections. There'll be a lot of Trump clones running. In some cases, they'll be running in primaries against more establishment candidates. How those Trump clones do in 2022, both in primaries and then 
in their attempts to win key districts and swing states for Republicans will still tell us a lot about how much influence uh, Donald Trump will retain over the long run. But as I say, to me, the bottom line is Trumpism is here. It's not going away. Uh, Republicans will uh, be in it for a while. It seems like these QAnon uh, folks just came out of a nowhere, folks like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Georgia and uh, others, but they didn't really come out of nowhere, did they? I mean, I, I get the sense they've been uh, percolating for uh, years, and uh, now they're really just uh, coming seemingly uh, from uh, everywhere. What is behind their rise? Well, uh, this is the other key point, I think, both to the book and to the current situation, which is to understand that Trumpism didn't come out of the blue from nowhere overnight. It, it the 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 ground was being laid for years. I mean, you saw the precursors with Pat Buchanan in the 90s, with Sarah Palin in the 2000s, with the Tea Party movement, even with the Occupy Wall Street and Bernie Sanders movements on the left to some extent, there were signs that there was a populist wave building. And the reason for that populist wave um, and the reason you know people like Marjorie Taylor Greene can rise to the surface is a deep and abiding suspicion about uh, the establishment, the financial establishment and the political establishment. This is born of income inequality uh, increasing, uh, the feelings that the global economy isn't working out for the working class the way it is working out for the capitalist class. Um, and also, I think, a feeling that um, in the financial meltdown of 2007, 2008, 2009, which is where the Tea Party was born, that the elites came out fine and a lot of working people, you know, suffered and lost their homes and what's wrong with this picture. So you have a kind of a, a deepening suspicion of the establishment on all fronts, which kind of is the way Donald Trump could walk through an open door and the way uh, that this um, you know, populism is taking root in the country. Again, that's something Trump took advantage of, but it's not something he created and it's not exclusive to him. It's going to be there for a while. And you mentioned populism. Uh, George W. Bush, I think, has railed against what he calls uh, these isms, nativism, isolationism, nationalism, uh, populism, as you say. These forces are part of Trump's DNA, of course, and it's running up against uh, a more uh, racially and culturally diverse America. That's what the demographic trends Suggest. So the question is, as we uh, see uh, a lot of a friction as these forces bump up against each other, how do you see all this uh, playing out in the years ahead? Well, it's going to be tense for a while, and the isms are arising in part because of that demographic change. I mean, you do have a sense that there are a lot of Americans who think um, they're losing the grip on the country they once knew. They don't recognize the face of the country they are seeing emerging. They don't like it and they're scared by it. Um, this is not the first time in American history that that's happened, but it's happening right now. And I think it's going to produce a fair amount of divisiveness for several years before it shakes out. Um, that is the reason you had such a tense summer in many ways. And the question about uh, the political effects of this is uh, whether demographics are destiny, as Democrats hope, and that um, the changing face of America works better for the Democrats than it does for Republicans. I'm not 100% convinced that's true. I think that Republicans may have to get to a position in which they stop fighting the demographic changes overcoming uh, the country and start to figure out how to use them, work with them, turn them to their advantage. 
you saw a little of that when when Donald Trump picked up probably eight percentage points among Hispanic voters right. in 2020 versus how well he did with them in 2016. I think Republicans increasingly will see that as, and, and, and and draw the lesson that they need to work with the new America, not fight the new America, because there's a certain inevitability about it. But right now, this transition is is rough and it's messy. The book, again, we should have seen it coming from Reagan to Trump, a front row seat to a political revolution. Go out and buy this book, Jerry Seib. A great honor to have you on Westbrook Reports. Thank you so much. Totally my pleasure. Glad to talk. Now let's open up the West Wing Reports archives and take a look at what made history this week in the past. In 1939, World War II was underway in Europe, and Franklin Roosevelt asked Congress to amend something called the Neutrality Acts so the U.S. could aid Britain and France. Those countries had declared war on Nazi Germany two weeks before, after Nazi Germany invaded Poland. 1957, President Eisenhower ordered federal troops to Little Rock, Arkansas, to enforce the admission of black school students. School desegregation, of course, had been ordered by the Supreme Court in its landmark Brown v. Board of Education ruling three years before. To the White House in Washington comes the final verdict on the fateful tragedy which engulfed the nation ten months ago. In 1964, the Warren Commission released its report on the assassination of President Kennedy. It said that Lee Harvey Oswald, acting alone and with the help of no one, killed JFK. And while everybody knows that Kennedy was assassinated in November 1963, hardly anybody knows that two months before, listen to this, he participated in a home movie made by friends in which he was killed. A White House photographer at the time said that JFK wrote the script himself. You can't make this stuff up. Our war on terror begins with al-Qaeda, but it does not end there. It will not end until every terrorist group of global reach has been found, stopped, and defeated. And in 2001, George W. Bush warned Americans to prepare for a long war against terrorism. Speaking to a joint session of Congress nine days after terrorists attacked New York and Washington, Bush outlined his plans to combat global terror. He also named Pennsylvania Governor Tom Ridge as the first director of a new cabinet department, Homeland Security. Of Islamic terrorists, Bush said, quote, were not deceived by their pretenses to piety, but added that America was not at war with Islam itself. Bush's warning that the war on terror would be long was correct. It, frankly, will never be over. Want more presidential history? Check out my books on Amazon. I'll sign them for you, too. Just shoot me an email, pbrandis at evergreenpodcasts.com. That's P-B-R-A-N-D-U-S. I try my best to answer all emails. All I ask is that you keep it civil. Also include your full name and town and thank you. I like to end each week with a quote, something you might find thoughtful. This week's contribution from Abraham Lincoln. He said, quote, Do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? Think about it. 
That's all for this week. West Wing Reports is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to C-SPAN and the National Archives for the audio clips. Our producer and sound engineer and designer, Noah Fouts. Executive producers, Michael DeAloya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm Paul Brandis. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts.